welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8 as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. And before we begin, I would like to make a correction to something I said last week. I don't know how many of you noticed it, but a few of you corrected me, and I appreciate that. And what I said was the Bible only records two people being healed of leprosy. And obviously that's not true. And what I meant to say, it was a misspeak, I meant to say the Old Testament only records two people being healed of leprosy. So um, I misspoke, and I appreciate the fact that I was corrected in that. So if you ever catch me on something, don't hesitate. Let me know. I'm not afraid. And I don't take it personal because I do take this seriously and I do only want to say what is right and true. And so if I make a mistake, not only, just, not only you know, you can, you can challenge me if you don't agree with something I say, but, you know, I don't have to agree with that, right? <laughs> this case, I agreed automatically. As soon as, as soon as the first person mentioned it to me, yeah, that was, that was a mistake. All right. So... At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed at, at the way that Jesus spoke. He spoke with power and authority. And then, and then chapter 8 began with a display of Jesus' power, and he did it in the, in the, um, in the healing of well, three individual people, but then also we hear at the end of that that just multitudes came and were healed. And so healing upon healing upon healing. And so we're going we're gonna to continue on as we see Jesus' power manifested in a different way in this, but throughout this we recognize if Jesus is to be the king, the, the king of this world, he has to have power, he has to have authority, he has to have all these, these things that make give him the ability to rule in the way that he should. And so uh, we're going to see some more of that today. So um, chapter 8 has more of these displays. I'm going to see it throughout really the gospel, but we're going to focus on a couple of them this morning. So let's pray. And we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand Jesus and his power because it is so important for us to understand if he has power and we are his people he has power for us. He has power that we can, we can, we can um, take advantage of, power that we can experience, power that we can, in fact, manifest ourselves. And so it's important for us to understand this power and to appropriate, appropriate it 
for our lives, for our marriages, our families, our community, our church. We, we need to know that because the world needs the power of God manifesting through the people of God by the Spirit of God, based upon the Word of God. Somebody say amen. That's true. That's right. Right? Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we do pray. Holy Spirit, that you'd come and that you would, right this very moment, Lord, every last one of us needs your power. Some of us need it more than others. Some of us recognize the need that we have more than others. But we all have needs. And Lord, as we come here this morning, I was, I was thinking about this during worship, that our needs are so different. Some of us come with, with needs that are great, and difficult and hard and seemingly overwhelming. Others come with different kinds of needs. And some might even not even might not even be able to voice any any specific kind of a need. But we all have need. And the very first thing we need is you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would just just settle our hearts to sit in your presence, to hear from you that we might know something about you today that is different, that will enable us to walk in your power. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus had just finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and after he came down, he, he does these three healings. First, the leper, and then the centurion's servant, and then Peter's mother-in-law. Now, now there's a sense, or some, some commentators believe that there was time in between. There's also a sense that all of this happened, all of chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 all happened in one day. And so we're going we're gonna to go with that, with that kind of um, mindset. Um, it's interesting that, you know, that these three healings are focused on, then almost as an afterthought, you know, we see that that, that many people experienced healings on that day. It wasn't just those three. After the three were done, they get into Peter's house and all of a sudden people start thronging him and you know, everybody's bringing you know, you know, their uncle's, brother's, cousin's, neighbor who has a hangnail to Jesus to be healed. And so all these healings are taking place. The power of Christ manifesting through this, this, this physical manifestation of power by the healing of people is drawing a crowd. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 8. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now, now a careful study of Jesus will reveal that he often does things that are not what you'd expect him to do. From a human perspective, he did things like, like, okay, well, why would you do that right there? Here he is. He's just done all, he's preached what may be the most significant sermon in human history, the Sermon on the Mount, then does these healings, and people are responding. They're coming. They're thronging together around him, and, and, and what does he do? He gave the command to depart. It's time to go. Now, the preacher in me, says, hey, 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 we've drawn a crowd. What should we do here? We're going to preach a sermon. Let's tell people about God and his kingdom. And Jesus says, no, let's go. Jesus doesn't think the way that we do. And, 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 and we, as we approach things like this, we, we've got to we got to pause when we come to those things. And we come to those things, we say, okay, that's not how I would have done that. 
And, and we, have to, we have to settle back into the reality that, okay, he, he doesn't look at the world the way, we're going to see another one a little bit later. He doesn't respond the way that we think he ought to in many times. And whenever, whenever that happens, and it's not explained to me in Scripture why he did what he did the way that he did it, then I have to sit back and I have to comfort myself with the words of the prophet, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, the Lord speaking, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's saying, I don't think like you. I don't do like you. I am totally different than you. Everything that you do is different than everything that I do. And, and the difference is so great that it cannot be measured. And so when we come to these things where we say, okay, that's not how I would do it, I got to remember, oh, I am not God. And he is not me. He's bigger than me. He's greater than me. He knows more than I do. And because he's done this, there's a reason why he does it. And if he doesn't explain it to me, well, that's his prerogative as God. He doesn't have to explain it to me. He just did it that way. It would be pretty arrogant of us to believe that we can understand the mind of God. Don't do it. You're not God. You can't think like him. And so when you start, you start questioning God and thinking, mm, that's not the way I would have done it, God. Who, who should you be rebuking right at that moment? You need to be rebuking your heart because your heart's messed up. You don't, think, you don't think like God. Don't try to pretend like you can. So, so Jesus says, okay, we're out of here. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Lake Galilee, by the way. So on, on the way from Peter's house to the lake, it's not a great distance, but it's a little, little ways away, they are thronged by the multitudes. And Matthew highlights two encounters that Jesus has along the way. Verse, eight, verse 19. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, scribes were educated. They're educated in the law of Moses. They were experts. They're sometimes referred to as lawyers. They would interpret the law for people. And, and Jesus often had a problem with the scribes because they, they tended toward a very legalistic interpretation of the law. They missed the intent. They missed the heart of what God was trying to communicate and, and interpret it very literally and very legalistically. Some of the harshest things that Jesus said to anyone in the New Testament, he said against the scribes and the Pharisees, they were often connected. In Matthew 23, 13, it says this, but woe to you, woe is a serious, a serious rebuke. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. The, the, if you read through the rest of, not the rest, but a big chunk of Matthew 23, it's woe, scribes and Pharisees, woe, scribes and Pharisees, woe, scribes and Pharisees. He had a real problem with this legalistic interpretation of the law of God. God was trying to communicate something in the law. They were missing it. They were missing it by interpreting it using a, a system that focused on the, the, the law and not on the heart of God, not on the mind of God, not on the will of God. And when you do that, 
you're always going to do that. We have seen, see the same problem in churches today. Churches that interpret the, the, you know, the, the New Testament in a, in a very legalistic manner, they, 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 they become very narrow and very harsh in their presentation. The same thing was true often in here. So the scribe comes and he says, hey, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds fantastic, right? That sounds like this amazing confession of faith. Well, then Jesus' response is weird then because he says to them, hey, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. That seems like an odd response to you know, this, this, this exhortation for him you know, that I'm gonna follow you as one of your disciples. That's ultimately what he was trying to say. I'm, I'll be one of your disciples. What was Jesus addressing here? The implication is that the scribe thought that by following Jesus, he would, it would lead to his personal prosperity, that he would benefit on a personal level by following Jesus. That first, if I, if, I, if I do these things, that if I follow Jesus, become one of his disciples, I am going to get rich, get famous, get this, get that. Oh, that's a dangerous attitude. And this scribe is not the only one that has ever done that. People still do it today. They think if I, if I just, you know, get, get in a good church and, and you know, and, and, you know, put on the, you know, the, you know, the right Hawaiian shirt or the, you know, whatever, whatever we do. If I get a, if I, if I line up between the lines, yeah, yeah, that's all right. I was going to wear one this morning too and change my mind. So if I, if I, you know, if I get between these lines here, somehow at the end, I'm going to benefit from it. That's not why we follow Jesus. We don't follow Jesus what we're going to get out of it. We follow Jesus for what he's going to get out of it. He's going to get our life. He's going to get our testimony. He's going, to get, he's going to get the good works that he prepared for us, worked out in the world so the world can see Jesus and see the light and, see, and, and, and taste the salt of a, of a life that is lived in a way that is good and right and holy. Now, now, could we benefit from that? Of course we could. We could prosper through that, but that's not the reason why we do it. Jesus look, looked at this man, knew his inner heart, and knew that this is not why you, you're not following me so that you can be one of my disciples. You're following me for you, not for him, not for God. And if you're following Jesus for any other reason but Jesus, you're in it for the wrong reason. And you will find yourself empty and hollow. There's a phrase here that's interesting, son of man. This is the first occurrence of the phrase son of man in the New Testament. And it occurs 87 times in the New Testament. 83 of them are in the Gospels. And almost always, it is Jesus referring to himself. The title was also used in connection with the Messiah as the Savior. In Daniel, he received a vision, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of times, about the end of times, that used this title. In Daniel 7, Verse 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father, Holy God, and they brought him near before him. 
you know, if you've ever been one of my Bible study classes, you know, you got to really spend some time and figure out where those, where those pronouns go. Who are, they, who are they pointing to? They brought him before him. Now, in that text, if you look at it, I think it says it right there, you will notice both the hymns are capitalized. Both of them are referring to deity, to God. They brought him before him. So we know who one of the hymns was. It's God the Father. Who was the other one? Jesus. Good class. Then to him, that would be the first hymn there, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That would be Jesus. His, Jesus' dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. The way this is written, it was written as a way of, of making this person, this, this son of God, the son of man, excuse me, equal with God. And by attributing this title to himself, Jesus is saying that Daniel 7 is a prophecy about him. Saying that, that Daniel was talking about me in that. And the thing that we have to point to, that, that title is so important for us individually. Because what, he, what he's saying is he's pointing to the degree to which he stooped to save us. Now, there's another title used for Jesus, and, he, and it will get used a couple of times, a few times, and that is Son of God. But he preferred Son of Man. Both of them refer to different aspects of his nature. One of them, son of man, he's, he's pointing to his relationship to mankind. Son of God, he's pointing to his relationship with God the Father. And he acts as an intermediary between the two. But when he talked about himself, he almost always used the son of man. As, as he came to be our savior. He stooped from this role as as equal with God, and he came down and walked amongst us as one of us. In Philippians 2, 5, it says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it equal, robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus came. He, he stooped down from eternity, the perfection of eternity, the perfection of, of being with God the Father in perfect unity in heaven, in all of the beauty and the majesty and all the glory of heaven. And he came to walk as one of us. Now, I don't know if you've had any experience walking around in this world, it's, is it perfect? No. We've never met anybody that was perfect on a personal level. We, we all know Jesus, so we, we've got that going for us. But we've never actually sat next to somebody who was perfect. Don't look next to the person next to you. They're not perfect. We've never talked with them. I'm looking back. I, I don't want to mention his name. Somebody said, I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting next to myself. I'm, I'm pretty good. But we're not. We're not perfect. Jesus came and he walked with imperfect people. And he did it with great humility. It says in Mark, he came to serve and not to be served. He's God in the flesh. 
all of humanity should have fallen on their face before him in abject humility, giving him absolutely everything, worshiping the, the ground that he walked on. And yet he walked around just like us. As Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it reminds us of our relationship to him, saying, I came to be like you so that I could die for you, so that I, you could be with me, in my, with my Father in heaven. So whatever the scribe was looking for, he wasn't going to find it following Jesus. And that's a warning for all of us. You know what? If you do it wrong, you're not going to find what you're looking for. You can do all the right things. You can say all the right words. You can, you can, you can look like, you know, we talked about that in, the, in a previous um, metaphor that Jesus used. And you can look like all the right things, but if you've got the wrong heart, you're not going to find what you're looking for. So when we come to Jesus looking for Jesus, we come to Jesus looking for his will, we come to Jesus for salvation, we come to Jesus for strength and power and hope and all of the things that he provides, we come to him for that, but not what comes after. What comes after is on him. You know, all the good that we think we might want, that comes from him out of his grace and mercy and love. We're not told how the scribe responded to that statement. So we're not going to try to, you know, make an assumption here. And then it goes right into another brief encounter in verse 21. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's another one of those ones that really confuses people and, and often struggle over because it, it sounds a little harsh and a little mean. Now, the word dead here can be used to describe an attitude, and that's what Jesus is referring to here in this, an attitude towards something or someone. And we've all heard the phrase, you know, that person is dead to me. You know, that means I am going to relate to that person as if they are dead, or in the context that Jesus is using it, you know, that I am dead to them. Paul used that same idea when he spoke about how we should relate to sin in Romans 6.11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is a dead person tempted to sin? No. No, there is no temptation in death. You know, once you die, you will be tempted no more. And, 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 and what he's trying to communicate to us is that, is that we should get to a place where sin has no influence. It doesn't tempt us to sin. The, the things of the world, they don't, they don't tempt us to sin. Now, that, that's not an easy thing. It's a lifelong process to get to that place where we're not tempted to sin. But that's, the, that's our goal. Our goal is to be absolutely insensitive to the temptations to sin in the same way that a dead person would be insensitive to the temptation to sin. Now, the people in the world are dead to God. 
They are insensitive to him. They don't respond to him in the same way that a dead person won't respond to God. They can't respond to God. And the people in the world are spiritually insensitive. God's calling us to be insensitive to the things of the world. And, and what he's saying here, let the dead bury their own dead. What he's communicating is since dead people can't bury other dead people, he's, he's referring to spiritual death so that, so that you, if you have to choose following Jesus or meeting the needs, the spiritual needs of spiritually dead people, Jesus said, follow me. Now, that's, a kind, of, that's kind of an odd, wait a minute, aren't we, supposed to, aren't we supposed to minister to the spiritually dead? Yes, absolutely. You know how you do it? By following Jesus. If your focus is on ministering to the spiritually dead, then you're, you're going to miss what it is that Jesus would have you to do to minister to those who are spiritually dead. Now, another thought here is that this idea of, of ministering to the Father is that the most interpretations say that what this man was saying is, is that, is that you know, that I need, I, you know, because it was commanded by the scriptures, you know, honor your father and mother. And so, you know, I'm going to take care of my father until he passes away. There's no indication that his father was sick or, or, or in, you know, very aged. He's just kind of like putting off the idea of following Jesus. Jesus said, no, you follow me today. Follow me right now. And I will tell you how to honor your father and mother in a way that glorifies God and blesses them. Saying, let those who are spiritually insensitive to God minister to those who are spiritually insensitive to God. You follow me. <clears throat> and if we do that, if we follow Jesus, he'll tell us when it's time to minister to those who are spiritually insensitive to God. He'll tell us how to do it. He'll, and he'll tell us how to do it in such a way that they will be ministered to and that they might meet Jesus along the way. But if our focus is on them and not on following Jesus, we're going to miss it all. Well, eventually they make it to the boat. They get down to the lake, verse 23. Now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So we can understand this. You know, if this is the same day as the Sermon on the Mount, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, comes down, does these healings, lots of healings, and then lots of them, and then he you know, eventually gets into the boat and, and he's tired. It reminds us of the humanity of Christ. You know, that he was as human as any of us are. He had the same, the same weaknesses that we had. He had to eat. He had to sleep. He had to drink. He, all of these things were, you know, we see accounts of those all through the scriptures where he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired. We, we all have the same things. Again, this idea that we can relate to him, he can relate to us because we all, he, he went through some of the same things that we go through. All the same things we go through. So as he's sleeping, the storm arises. And the men of the boat freak out. And, 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 and it had to be some kind of a storm because many of these men are seasoned fishermen who have fished on this lake for their entire lives. 
But the very fact that Jesus asked them the question, where is your faith? Why are you afraid? Why are you fearful? Implies that they shouldn't have been, right? Does that make sense? If Jesus asked that question, it suggests to us that they should not have been afraid. As fearful as a storm might have been, they should not have been afraid. That's a hard thing for us. If Jesus, our Savior King, is with us, what, what should we fear? What should we be afraid of? What should we worry about? What should we be stressed out about? If Jesus is with us, what can, what can stand against us? Albert Barnes said this, Christians should never fear danger, disease, or death. With Jesus, they are safe. Now, now don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that danger, disease, or death aren't going to touch you. Because if you live long enough, every, all three of those will touch you. But we don't have to be afraid of them. We don't fear them. How do we know? How do we know that's true? Our faith tells us it's true. Our faith will tell us that while that danger appears to be something I should be afraid of, if I'm walking with Jesus and I'm doing it the best I know how, I'm following him, I'm obeying him, I'm serving him, I'm loving him, I, I'm, I, I you know, believe everything that he said, if, I, if that danger comes in my, in my, to me, then I don't have to be afraid of it. Now, I have to respond to it. I have to do something that, that relates to it, but I don't have to be afraid because Jesus is there with me. Listen, it's our faith that tells us that we do not have to be afraid of those things. That's what our faith does. Now, if your faith is not telling you that, is not saying, you know what, you don't have to be afraid of that. It's bad, but you don't have to be afraid of it. You know, that, that doctor's report, that's bad, but you don't have to be afraid. That news you got of that terrible thing that's happened somewhere to someone, that's bad, but you don't have to be afraid of that. Your boss giving you a hard time. Yep, that's, that's miserable. You don't have to be afraid of that. You know, that, that past due notice, that's, that's bad news. You don't have to be afraid of that because Jesus is your Savior King. And when we look at those things, we encounter those things, and our faith doesn't say to us, you have nothing to fear. If our faith doesn't say that, is the problem with that thing or is the problem with our faith? The answer is the problem with our faith. Now, again, that doesn't mean that those things aren't going to happen. doesn't mean they're not bad because they are. The fact is we should not be afraid of them. Verse 26, it says, Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. They have this raging tempest around them. And with a word, Jesus calms it, stops it, flat, calm. Have you ever been on the ocean on a flat, calm day? There is nothing like it. If you've ever been in a really bad storm, there's nothing like that either. It can be kind of freaky. 
Verse 27. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? In the minds, in their minds, the storm came from God. That 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 you know, and, and the way that they the way that, that culture thought that all these things were God ordained, you know, that God made it all. And that's the right way to look at all these things. That it happened, God caused it, and who could stop it? Only God. God brought it, only God can stop it. So here it is. Jesus stands up, rebukes it, and stops it. Who, who is this guy? Is the way that they're, they're marveling. Who is this guy? Because they're looking at him. He's a man. And yet he's doing what only God can do. That's amazing. You know, as believers, we know storms will come. We know difficult things will come, right? We know that. You know, you know we're not one of those churches that's going to tell you, oh, if you love Jesus and give enough money to the church, you'll never have any problems. Wouldn't you love it if that were true? Listen, storms come. They will come. And they're either going to be caused by God for a very great purpose that God is trying to do in the world or in your life, or God will allow them and then use them for a great purpose in the world or in your life. That's the only two ways that storms come, either by God to have some sort of a great work, or God allows it and then uses it for a great work. Romans 8.28 tells us that all, all things be worked out for the good. Either way, they pass through God's hands. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter how good it is, how glorious it is, or how horrible and terrible it is. God touched it before it happened. And that's hard. I mean, again, our minds cannot comprehend the depth of that, the, the immensity of that, the, 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 the reality, even the evil that's in this world that, that that somehow God allowed that for some great purpose that we can't imagine, we can't see. And it will be God's grace and mercy and love that will bring whatever that is to an end. So what do we do? We walk in faith. We believe. Because that's what Jesus is telling his disciples right here. Believe. Believe what? Believe me. Believe what I say. Believe what I do. I am who I say that I am. And these things that I do prove that I am who I say that I am. They, are, they prove who their Bible, which was the Old Testament, they prove what the Old Testament says about this person who will come, me, that will come. Believe. We, as we go through life, and storms come, and they will. They're just gonna. And they're not all big. You know, sometimes they're small. They're, they're little inconveniences. Anybody inconvenienced recently? You know, you know, I had a, you know, you have little health issues that happen. You know, like little things that come up. And you're like, come on. I don't have time for this. Okay, it's a little storm, a little storm. And then sometimes the big ones come. 
and they come, and they pass, and then another one comes, and another one passes. And what Jesus is saying to us here, oh, you of little faith, he's saying we must walk in faith. Believe in him. Believe in his sayings. Believe in his doings. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. How should we respond to these storms? Be anxious for nothing. Storm comes, don't be anxious about it. Don't be, all, don't be all fretting about it. Don't be all worrying about it. It's going to come. Just deal with it. Walk in faith, believing. In everything, in prayer, by prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication, reaching up to God, talking to God, asking God, believing what God says. With thanksgiving, thanksgiving for what God has done and what he will do. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Listen, the disciples are in that boat. Jesus does this, this and, and of all the miracles that Jesus does, this is the one that seems to freak them out the most, and I, I guess I get that. You know, I, I'm thinking healing the leper was a pretty big deal, and eventually he's going to raise a pe- couple people from the dead. That's a pretty big deal, too. But here, they marvel, like, who is this guy? Disciples are learning about Jesus. They didn't know him. They they knew about him, but they didn't really know everything there was to know about Jesus. We all go through the same process. When we come to faith in Jesus, we don't know very much. You know, maybe, maybe unless you've been in the church your whole life and you've heard all, you've read it all, you've heard it all, you know it all, and all of a sudden you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden it all makes sense. But the reality is we also go through this process of learning by experience who Jesus is. The, the disciples could not know how great Jesus is, how much power he has until they were sitting in the storm, fearing for their very lives, And Jesus stands up and tells the storm, be still. And it did. Immediately. As we walk with Jesus over time, endeavoring to know him, we're going to learn about him. We're going to learn about him both both knowledge-wise, we're going to... Hopefully, we're in our, in our Bible, reading our Bible, because you, know, you keep hearing it from us every, every week. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Because this is how we get to know Jesus, but it's not the only way. We've got to see him in the storm occasionally. We see him in the storm, and, we, and as we're walking in the storm, we're, we're floundering in the storm, and there he is. And as we see him, we learn more and more about him. He does this great work in our lives, and, and, we, and we recognize it. He's always been working. He's always doing something. But a lot of times, we don't recognize it. We don't see it. But those times happen where we, all of a sudden we realize, you know, we always experience that that was God. That was Jesus. I was going through my notes this morning, and it kind of occurred to me, having been saved as long as I have, this is a message for me as well. Because it's an interesting thing that happens with us. I've been reading the Bible, studying the Bible, teaching the Bible for over two decades now. And I'm still learning about Jesus. 
I, I, I'm even taking a class in Greek right now so that I can learn more about Jesus. As I read his word, I get deeper into the things of God and the things of Christ. I think there's a temptation, and it reminded me of my own faith. There's a temptation that as we grow in our faith and get to a place of spiritual maturity, that we start to kind of relax a little bit, and we kind of coast along. I know a lot. I know way more than so-and-so. And I think, I can, just, I can just cruise here. No. Now, Jesus wants you to know so much more. It must be a deliberate act to get to know Jesus better. And obviously, one of the places we believe is in his word, but it's not the only place. We, we learn about Jesus every single time. We deliberately do something that is connected to Jesus. When we read, when we pray, when we serve, when we give, when we, anything that we do and we connect it to Jesus, we're gonna learn a little bit, just moment by moment, increment by increment, we're gonna learn a little bit more about Jesus. Now we learn quite a bit as we go through the different storms of life. But here's the thing that we, I, I just want to caution you. It is possible to live a life that appears to be walking with Jesus, looks like you're walking with Jesus, and yet not get to know him. We read about that not long ago, where, where some will stand before Jesus and he'll say, mm, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's possible to walk in such a way that the rest of the world would say to you, oh, what a good Christian you are. And yet Jesus would say, I, I don't even know who you are. Now, that's obviously, he knows everything, but he doesn't know you the way that he wants to know you as one of his. You are not one of his. If you are not one of his, he will reject you in that time. Jesus has the power to save us, but we have to come to him. We have to reach out to him. We have to know him, and we have to continue to grow in our knowledge of him until we do know him in those things. Now, now he has the power to save us and, and to deliver us from all storms, to deliver us through all storms, because he doesn't always deliver us from all storms. He may only deliver us through some of the storms. He may take us through them. But I want you to notice here that in this, Jesus didn't tell his disciples, you know, just row harder. We'll get, you get through the storm, just row harder. Or, or raise some more sails, and, and we'll get through this. You know, steer this. No, he just said, just believe. Believe. Where is your faith? Meaning, you should just believe that I am. I am the power to save. In what? Fill in the blank. To believe that he had power over the storm, that he had the power to save them from anything that might come, the storm, the wind, the waves, whatever comes, whatever comes into our lives, whether it's big or small, he has the power to save us, to deliver us. Now, he had already proven that, hadn't he? Hadn't he already proven his power? He had, he had preached this remarkable sermon, and then he healed the things that in their minds was impossible. He heals a leper. 
people, lepers don't get healed. And he, le- he healed them. And then he, then he heals the centurion's servant without even being around him. He wasn't anywhere near the centurion's servant, and he heals him. In this account, we see that Jesus had power over the storm. But we also see that he had peace within the storm. It's nice to know that, God, that Jesus has power over the storm, but that peace, that's a good thing to know as, too, as well. His peace, that, that peace that surpasses human understanding or, where you look at it and, and you, even you marvel. How, how can I be at peace at this, in this situation? How can I be at peace when I can't X, Y, Z? How can I be at peace when this is coming at me, this is coming toward me? How, how can I know peace? Well, I know peace because I know the peace that Jesus gives. Paul said, and I read the verse in Philippians, that that anyone who puts their trust in God can have that peace. Anyone. A peace that doesn't matter what the storm is, doesn't matter how bad it is, that you can know peace. Now that peace is what keeps you settled even in the midst of the wind and the waves and the storm and the noise and all the stuff that's coming at you, all the chaos, all these different things, that we can be at peace. Your heart can be calm. So we always, if your heart is all in turmoil, if your heart is all, you know, you know, waves, you know, your heart is jumping this place and going that place and all freaking out and all of that, that's not peace. And Jesus would say to you, why are you fearful? Why are you fretting? Why are you, why are you all worked up? Oh, you of little faith, believe, believe, believe in him, he has the power to save from anything. Whatever's going on in your life, he has the power to save. Whether it's health or relationship or finances or jobs or the economy or car issues and house issues and whatever they might be, he has the power to save. It takes faith. We simply stand and believe. What did the disciples have to do to get through that storm? They did nothing. And Jesus delivered them so that they would believe. And he does that. Another account of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walked on the waves of the storm to the disciples, to the guys in the boat. And they're, just, they're struggling. Same thing. They're afraid. They're fearful. They're, they're, they're struggling to, to keep going through this storm. And Jesus walks up, just, just walking up on the waves. It freaked them out. Okay, I get that. In that account, we can learn that Jesus can walk with us in the fiercest storm that we might encounter. He's walking on the storm. And we can walk with him. We don't have to be caught up in the waves and the wind and the noise and all of that. And we can walk at peace on that storm. Thankfully, life is not all about storms. Somebody say hallelujah. There can be moments of peace. Maybe sometimes not as often as we like. There can be moments of peace. 
Listen, this is, this is maybe one of the most important points of this message. When is the best time to get ready for a storm? Before it comes. You know, getting ready for a storm while it's storming doesn't work. You know, if, you know, thankfully, I'm going to say thankfully we don't live in Florida. Maybe, maybe that's not the right phrase. But if we lived in Florida and you know a hurricane is coming, when should you get ready for it? Before it gets there, right? Because if you wait till when, it's ha- when it gets there, windows are going to be busted out, water is going to come in, it's going to be a problem. And so what God would say to us here, that, that God does bring times of peace, times when things aren't as hard, times when, you know, when, when, you know, when things are relatively okay, that is the time to seek Jesus, to get to know him better, to grow in your faith, because, because there may be a storm coming, maybe a really big one. If we, if we wait until the storm to start growing in faith, we, we will grow, I mean, because you'll grow, but not to the same degree. And here's the thing. If you grow in your faith before the storm comes, you will endure the storm better when it does come. We get to know Jesus as much as we can, as early as we can, so that when something happens, we're better ready for it, better prepared for it. We're not as, we're not as, we're not as fearful as the disciples were. And we recognize, wait a minute, Jesus is with me. The faster we can get to that place where whatever comes into our life, we can bring ourselves to that place, well, yeah, that's bad, but Jesus is with me. Jesus is walking with me. Jesus has the power to save me from this, and I don't know how, I don't know if he's going to save me from this, but he has the power to do it. Therefore, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be freaked out. I don't have to be wondering what's going to come. It doesn't matter because Jesus is with me. He's walking with me. And nothing else matters. During the calm periods of life, seek Jesus most fervently. Seek him. And that's not natural for us. Because what do we like to do when it's calm? We like to play. We like to take it easy. We like to relax, right? And and, and there's nothing wrong with playing and relaxing and, and those sorts of things. But let's not forget, it's during those times when we can draw nearer to Jesus in a way that prepares us for whatever might be coming next. Because unfortunately, we don't get, a, we don't get an agenda of the things that are coming, right? You know, as, as we get into the storms, we're focused on just keeping the boat afloat. But if we're faithful to seek Christ during the calm... We'll have more faith to weather the storm that might come, no matter how bad it is. Seek Jesus while you can. And then, when the storm comes, you can endure it with his peace. And no, he will save me from this. And if you're in the calm, praise him. Praise Jesus if you're in the calm and look around. Because there's somebody around you who's probably in a storm. And God would say to you, while they're in the storm and you're in the calm, what should you do? You should help them. Stand with them. Encourage them. Support them. Whatever God might call you to do. And if we do that, we will walk together. That's why God brings us together. That's why sometimes people are in storms. At the same time, you know, right across the aisle from you is somebody who's in the calm. And we should, we should 
draw one to one another. We should be leaning on one another and loving one another and encouraging one another and helping one another and comforting one another. All the, thing, all the one another verses in the New Testament, we ought to be doing all those things for one another. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come and we, we do recognize, Lord, as I'm speaking to any size group of people, whether they're here in person or online, Lord, we know, we know, we know that there are people who are in the calm and people who are in the storm. And Lord, for those who are in the storm, Lord, I pray a special touch upon them, Lord, as I know that can be so hard. You know, even as I pray that, you know, people come to my mind, people that are in difficult, difficult times. Lord, in, in this time, Lord, I pray, Lord, as, 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 as we talked about today, that they would lean upon you, Jesus. Know that you have the power to save them to save them from whatever the circumstance is or, or whatever, whatever the, uh, the emotional um, um, struggle that's connected to this storm, whatever the issue is that, Lord, you have the power to save. And we believe that, God. And I pray that you'd help us to believe it more, that we would lean on you more and more. And I pray, Lord, as they walk through that storm, Lord God, I help them. I pray, Lord God, that you would help them to feel your presence. Because if they're one of your people, you are with them. And Lord, they might need a special sense of your presence right now. And I pray that over them right now. And I pray, Lord, for those who are in calm or relative calm. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would use this time to seek you more diligently and that they would, they would draw nearer and nearer to you, and that at the same time, they would look around themselves and see if there's someone else that might be struggling in the storm, in whatever their storm might be, and that they would reach out, and that they would, they would walk with them and help them and encourage them and comfort them through that difficult time. Lord, I thank you, God, that Jesus is our Savior King. Lord God, that there is no limit to what he can do for us. And all you call us to do, all you ask of us is that we would believe. And in believing that we would obey. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love. And we thank you that no matter what happens in our lives, you are with us. And you will walk with us through whatever storm might come into our lives. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's going through a particularly difficult storm, Lord, they would seek you more diligently. And that, Lord, they would, they would, they would be quick to, to reach out both to you and to your people for whatever help they might need. But more than anything else, I pray that they would trust you, God to carry them through to the other side, carry them through whatever it is they're going through. And Lord, I lift up, if there's anyone here who has never put their trust in you, Lord God, that you would help them to do that right this very moment, that they would recognize that, that going through the storms of life, which come both to your people and to uh, people that aren't your people, they, they come to all of us. It's much better to do it with you than to do it without you. And more importantly, that there is an eternity ahead for all of us. And that eternity be sent with you or without you. With you is good and glorious and wonderful. Without you is 
horrible, terrible. And so I pray they would recognize their great need for you, that they would turn to you, that they would confess that they need you to save them right now. And by doing so, that you would give them the peace that you offer to all of us. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this day. We lift it up to you and ask, Lord God, that you would walk with us as we strive to walk with you. We thank you that you are walking with us even when we don't recognize it. You are always with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And we ask, Lord God, that you'd help us to know that better and better, that we would grow in our faith to such a degree that we can weather whatever storm comes into our lives. Praise you and love you. And we lift up this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.